Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Good morning, Grace. We are in the book of Luke today, Luke chapter 9, and you can make your way also to Hebrews 12. We'll be looking at both of those passages. While you're turning there, I do want to let you know that some of you filled out a card, a connection card, about a month, month and a half ago saying, I can disciple someone or I want to be discipled by someone. I've been in contact with some of you. Um, if you haven't heard from me, I need you to email the, me this week. It means, uh, one, I couldn't read your phone number or couldn't, couldn't read your email address. There were several of you that wrote really fast your email address. So if you said, hey, I want to be discipled or I can disciple someone, email me this week. I'll connect you with someone. We have materials for you. We want to take discipleship seriously here at Grace. And if you're sitting there for the first time and you're hearing this and you say, hey, I can disciple someone, write on the back of one of the yellow cards that you can do that with your information that's legibly written, and I will contact you. If you want to be discipled by someone, write on the back of that card, please disciple me, and we'll get in touch with you. We're starting a little mini-series this week on discipleship called Follow, Making Disciple, Making Disciples, and that's what we want to be about at Grace. So we're going to look at discipleship over the next five weeks. Today's kind of a broad view of discipleship. We'll kind of come at it at some different angles in the coming weeks. Um, and then, hopefully, Lord willing, at the beginning of May, we'll be in the book of Jonah. So if you want to start reading ahead in the book of Jonah. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to begin in verse 51. But let's pray before we start. Father, we have been singing Hosanna. We thank you for your great love, Father. As your word says, see what great, out of, the wor- out of this world, unbelievable love that you have for us. Our Father, that we should be called children of God. We thank you for that. We know it's possible only because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has come to save us. And we thank you for that, Father. We thank you for your Spirit that you have given to us as a down payment and a guarantee of our eternity with you on the new earth, with new glorified bodies. And we thank you for that, God. We long for the day when your son will break through the clouds and set up his kingdom upon this earth where we will be with you forever. Thank you for sending Jesus, God, as we look at discipleship today. May you open our eyes to see how beautiful your son is and how wonderful he is. When you give us a distaste for sin and the things that weigh us down. Would you make us nauseous to the things of the world, God? And may, you, may we truly taste and see today that you are good. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday, traditionally the day that the church has looked at passages highlighting Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, and that's where we'll be today in Luke chapter 9. But as we look at Jesus and his determination to make it to Jerusalem, we'll also see that as disciples, we are called to be determined and to continue running the race of discipleship that has been set before us. We'll see today that Jesus' face was set like flint towards Jerusalem and that we too as disciples must set our faces as flint and press on to know him and to extend his kingdom in this world and 
as Jesus moved aside any distraction that kept him from Jerusalem from, from fulfilling his mission, we too are called to throw off things that would keep us from running the race. Our big idea today is simply this. Discipleship requires a focused commitment. If you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must have a very focused, intentional commitment on your part. You must be determined to keep your eyes on Jesus and pursuing him with all of your heart. There's no place in discipleship for laziness. There's no place in discipleship for us to kick our feet up and relax. There's no let go and let God. It takes work to daily pursue Jesus, to daily die to sin, to daily look to him and say, you are my treasure in this world. Look with me at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke writes and says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. The first thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus is determined to get to Jerusalem. His face is set towards Jerusalem. In the span of three verses, Luke says that two times, emphasizing that Jesus was on a mission and that he was determined to get to Jerusalem. His mission was to die, to bring sinners like you and like me, to God. And he's determined to fulfill that mission. Now, understand here, this is not some random string of events. God's sovereignty is all over this passage. His sovereignty over his son's impending death and his suffering and rejection and death are captured in verse 51 when, when Luke says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up. In other words, all was going according to plan. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world was determined to fulfill his mission. The phrase here, taken up, refers to Jesus' ascension, meaning Jesus' mission was to live, to die, to be resurrected, and then to return to the glory of the Father until the time when he would set up his kingdom upon the new earth. Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom that carries this idea of one's determination to accomplish a task. It's a firm, unshakable resolve to do something. It's used several times in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, the ESV translates it, I have set my face like a flint. Flint is a, a hard substance. And, and, and the, the, to be flint-faced like Jesus is here, or for us to be flint-faced disciples, it means that we have a firm, immovable resolve, unyielding, not impressible, determined, unchanged, and hard. And that's what we see in Jesus. He's unyielding. He will not be persuaded otherwise. He must make it to Jerusalem. Now, why? Why is Jesus so determined to make it to Jerusalem? Is it because a new Chipotle opened up in town? which seems to be where everybody in Santa Maria was this last week, right? He's determined to get to Jerusalem because it is in Jerusalem that he will be rejected and beaten 
spit upon, cursed at, and will ultimately lay his life down and become a sponge that absorbs the holy, righteous wrath of God for sinners. And that's what we'll look at next week. And that's why Jesus is determined. Nothing can stop his mission. Now, notice in verse 52 that Jesus sent messengers ahead of him into a Samaritan village. If you were a Jewish reader reading this, your eyebrows would go up and say, Jesus wants to go into a Samaritan village? Are you, are you right? Really? He wants to go there? The reason why is that Samaritans were half Jew. They weren't full-blooded Jews. Samaria in the Old Testament was the capital city of the northern kingdom that uh, Omri founded, 1 Kings chapter 16. They were a mixed-race, part Israelite, part non-Israelite, and despised by pure-blooded Israelites, which is why in chapter 10, one chapter over of Luke, you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's why it's so shocking. It's so shocking that a Levite and a priest full-blooded, pure-blooded Jewish people would walk by the man on the road, but the Samaritan, who every Jewish person despised, he would stop and help someone. So you're kind of surprised as you're reading this that Jesus wants to go through Samaria. It would have taken three days' journey just to get through the Samaritan region, and most Jews would have taken the long route. They didn't, never wanted to go through the Samaritan region. And the fact that Jesus wants to go through proves his determination to get to Jerusalem. So he sends messengers ahead of him, but the Samaritans do not receive Jesus. See, the Jews worshipped Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And that's, there was this conflict on, you know, where does worship, true worship take place? You see it in John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well. You know, there's this debate there about where true worship happens. So the, the Samaritans do not receive Jesus, probably because he's a Jew and they're a little, eh, we're not so sure about you. And plus you're going to Jerusalem to worship. Why not go to Mount Gerizim? That's where we worship. But the text says in verse 53 that they reject Jesus because he set his face toward Jerusalem. They didn't understand that he was on a mission either, a mission to die to bring sinners to God. His disciples are clueless as well. James and John here, uh, you you can't help but laugh at these guys, although I would have done the same thing as them. We like to throw Peter and James and John under the bus, but listen, we would have done the same thing, right? If we'd have been there. They say, "Do, do you want us to call down fire on them, Jesus? As if Jesus, it's too much for him. I can't handle this. I really need your help right now. Well, you want us to call down fire? Jesus uh, calls them in, in Mark 3, sons of thunder. Here it's as if they want to say, we want the rest of our name. You've already called us sons of thunder. We want to be sons of lightning. Can we call down fire and consume these half-blooded Samaritan people because they're rejecting you? But they don't understand his mission either. His mission was not to come and condemn people. He had to get to the cross first. Now was not the time to destroy them. Jesus came to bring people to God. There's coming a day when Jesus will destroy his enemies. But Jesus was determined to get to the cross. Now, what's fascinating about this text, though, is what happens and what follows next in verse 57 through 62. Don't let the paragraph divisions fool you. Don't let the little heading that you have above verse 57. Mine says the cost of following Jesus. Maybe you have a heading above that paragraph. These two paragraphs are to go together. So don't make the disconnect there. They're going to show us that just as Jesus set his face like flint, we too as disciples must set our faces like flint and pursue him. 
We'll see here in verses 57 through 62 that discipleship requires a focused commitment on our part as well, that we must keep rehearsing the gospel and remembering and, and, and basking in and delighting in all that God is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. In verses 57 through 62, uh, three times Luke will use the word follow. He, he's making a point here that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to follow him and you have to follow him wholeheartedly. You see, the Lord once first commandment people who say you are my god that's what it means to follow jesus that you love him more than anything in this world that's why luke uses that word three times to follow we have three individuals that we'll look at here in verses 57 through 62 where luke will drive home the point that discipleship requires a focused commitment following jesus means that you give up everything in your life that would hinder you from following him and understand this the life of a disciple is this is not a one-time giving up here we are daily called to give up things that are distracting us from following jesus so discipleship is a is an ongoing process where daily we're saying what what am i doing in my life that's keeping me and hindering me from following jesus now let's look at these three individuals individual one is going to show us that following Jesus as a disciple involves separating ourselves from worldly comforts. To follow Jesus as a disciple means that you move out of your comfort zone. Look at verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first would-be disciple comes up and says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. You go into Jerusalem, I'm going there with you. You head somewhere else, I'm going to follow you. But this man does not understand how uncomfortable and how uneasy it will be to follow Jesus. This man does not know that to follow Jesus means that it may cost you your life. You may lose everything in order to follow him. Following Jesus means that you lose everything. Unlike the rabbis of Jesus' day that you followed around and you learned the Torah, the Old Testament from them, and you memorized the verses and you learned their way of thinking, you do that with Jesus, but that's not all you do. You lay your life down. You adjust every facet of your life around him. You suffer for him. You experience rejection and you might experience death. So see, this is no health and wealth prosperity gospel when you follow Jesus. Rejection is what you get. It's not going to be easy. That's the context that we must understand discipleship in. We will be rejected by the world for following Jesus. It will not be easy and it will not be comfortable. Even Jesus himself says, foxes have a place to sleep and the birds of the air. But he said, you know what? I don't have a place to lay my head. Following Jesus as a disciple involves separating ourselves from worldly comforts. Based on Jesus' reply to this man, this man was focused on comfort and security. Jesus responds by saying that following him means we leave all comforts, even our comfort zones, to follow him. Why is that so? We can leave the comfort and the security because we have 
Jesus. And to have Jesus is to have everything. And if you have Jesus, you have everything so you can lose everything else in your life. If you have Jesus, you can go to the hard places of ministry. You can lay your life down and be uncomfortable because you have everything that you need in him. You don't need comfort and security found in other things because you have comfort and security in Jesus Christ. So discipleship requires this focused commitment, keeping your eyes on Jesus because he is everything. Individual 2, we'll see in verses 59 through 60, he will teach us that following Jesus as a disciple takes precedence over every relationship and situation. Look at verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Here Jesus asks this man to follow him, unlike the other man who who made the request and said to Jesus that he would follow him anywhere. Jesus tells this man to follow him, and it seems like he has a pretty good reason to delay following Jesus. He says, let me go bury my father. Now, I, I, I think that his that his father wasn't dead yet or at least hadn't recently died because this man would have been in the middle of a hectic funeral process. So I don't think it's in the middle of this. Two, two of scenarios are probably what's happening here. One, he wanted to wait until his dad died and who knows how long that could take. Maybe his dad was very ill and he thought, you know, in the next year, dad's gonna die and then I can follow you, Jesus. Or it could be that his dad died recently And the mourning process in the Jewish culture would have taken a year. They would have waited for the body to decompose, and then they would have buried the bones in in an ossuary, you know, the little boxes that archaeologists have found recently. So instead of following Jesus, this man says, let me wait until my dad dies, or let me wait until this certain extended period is over. I mean, if this man, if anybody has a good excuse to, to to wait to follow Jesus, just let me bury my dad. This is my dad. Honor your father and mother, Jesus. Jesus says, I'm to be the priority. There's not a more convenient time to wait for. Now is the time to follow me, Jesus says. Matthew Henry says in his commentary on this verse, we are tempted to rest in a discipleship at large in which we may be at a loose end and not to come close. So we may be tempted to say, I'm, I'm a part of the church. I'm a part of the disciples, but... I'm not full in. I'm not in, you know. I'm not, I come to church. Yeah, I do that. I read my Bible occasionally. But are you following Jesus? Is he your treasure? Is he your passion in life? So Jesus says to this man, let the dead bury the dead. What does he mean by this? Daryl Bach says, Jesus' command is heavily rhetorical since the dead cannot bury anyone. It means either that the spiritually dead should be left to perform this task or that such concern is inconsequential in the face of the call to discipleship. As important as taking care of a family member's death is, it is a lower priority. Either way, Jesus makes it clear the request should not be honored. Even the best excuse possible should not get in the way of discipleship. Jesus is saying there's no reason to postpone following me. Following Jesus as a disciple takes precedence over every relationship and situation. 
when I took discipleship seriously in high school, I had to sever ties with all my drinking buddies. And it was hard. And I tried to hang out with them, and we didn't have fun. And I had to break those ties. There are relationships in your life as a disciple that God will call you to break those relationships off. Not that you completely ignore these people. You want to share the gospel with them. But you know there are people in your life that God may be calling you to end that relationship, whatever relationship it is, because it's hindering you from following him. Notice too here that uh, Jesus places the emphasis on preaching the good news of the kingdom. He tells this man, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God, which means that following Jesus as the disciple is something disciples do every day, all the time. Here he brings the man back to the focus. Here's what you're to be about, preaching the gospel, preaching the kingdom, that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to suffer, to bring sinners to God and to restore what is broken in this world. Jesus says, this is the message I want you to proclaim. See, this man didn't understand that if he had Jesus, he had everything. He's looking back to his family when the greatest treasure in the world was standing right in front of him and saying, come and follow me. What we see about Jesus here is that even though he is compassionate and amen that he's compassionate, he is not compassionate to our excuses, is he? He demands first commandment faithfulness. Jesus is not compassionate. If you say, listen, you know, my spouse just isn't meeting my needs, so I need to have another little relationship on the side. Jesus is going to come along and say, come here, I understand how you feel. Okay. If you're trying to remove yourself from this world by being involved in drugs or things on the internet, whatever it is, and it's sin, Jesus isn't going to say, come here, put your head on my shoulder, I understand. No, Jesus is going to look at you and say, follow me. There's grace. In any of those situations you're in, he will give you grace if you call out to him. But he does not let you sit with your excuses and say, here's why I can't follow you right now. He is gracious. He is loving. He is kind. But as we'll see in the book of Jonah, he doesn't let people stay where they are. He loves you that much that he wants to transform you. The third individual we'll see will teach us that following Jesus as a disciple involves not looking back to the way life was before we came to follow him. Look at verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I mean, this guy looks like he has a great excuse too. Hey, just let me go say goodbye to my friends and say goodbye to my mom and dad. You know, pack my backpack, get some granola bars and bottled water, and I'm ready to follow you. I just want to let everybody know where I'm going. And Jesus says, no, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. It it reveals to us that the heart never easily gives up its attachments to the old ways and values. Jesus wants a clean break. In their culture, if you were plowing and you looked back, your lines aren't going to be straight. If you mow, have, does anyone mow their lawn like this? What's your yard going to look like? It's the point. You've got you to look ahead. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. There's a focused commitment. Following Jesus involves not looking back to the way life was before we came to follow him. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus if you want to be a disciple because discipleship is centered around him. 
Now turn with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. Where we will see that just like Jesus in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we must have this focused commitment. This passage ties in with our passage today because we see how focused Jesus was. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In keeping with everything that the writer of the book of Hebrews has said so far, now he gives this commandment. And it's one simple commandment in the Greek. It's, it's run. This book is all about endurance. You read the book of Hebrews, it's about enduring and staying faithful to the end. And now he gives this commandment and he says, run. Just run the race. We have these cloud of witnesses around us, which means it's not as some people think, you know, we have these, everybody in heaven is watching us. I think it's the people in chapter 11 of Hebrews in the hall of faith, all these people in the Old Testament, that they are the witnesses crying out to us, run, run, run. And so he gives this commandment, run, and he tells us how. He says, you run by laying aside two things, weight and sin. What is the weight that we are to throw off as we're pursuing Jesus? It's anything that gets in our way of running the race and having our faces set as flint. Weight is anything in our life that distracts us from following Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're distracted from following Jesus because of something, that thing in your life is weight and it must be thrown off because you can't run with all this weight. When my boys were taking swimming lessons uh, in Texas, at the end of several years of swimming lessons, their final event and moment was they had to jump off the diving board in the deep end, which they had done before for several weeks and had to swim the length of the pool. The very last day, they were given these instructions. Show up with your shoes on and a pair of jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt. In Texas, in the middle of summer, for swimming lessons. Now, why? So they could learn to jump off the the diving board into the deep end and swim the length of the pool with their clothes on. In case they ever fell in somewhere, they would be exposed to that. It's a picture of as, as we as disciples have to throw things off. Have any of you ever fallen in at a lake or something or somebody pushed you in a pool as a joke? What's it like to get out with your clothes on that are soaking wet your jeans? Is it easy to walk? Would you run a marathon that way? We wouldn't. You would want a tank top and very loose shorts. That's the picture here we have. The writer of Hebrews is saying, run. But if you're going to run, you've got to throw off that weight so that you're free to move. So let me ask you today, where is the weight in your life that you need to cut off, that you need to throw off? You fill in the blank. Is it something you watch on TV, on the internet? Is a relationship, a situation you're in? Identify something right now in purpose, right now, to say, By God's grace, through the power of the Spirit, I'm going to throw this weight off that I may pursue Jesus with all of my heart. Then the writer says we need to lay aside sin. The sin that he's referring to, I think Jerry Bridges explains well in his book, The Transforming Power of the Gospel. He says the author wrote of sin that clings so closely. 
Sin clings to us as tightly as plastic wrap clings to glass. It is not that we walk through life generally unscathed by sin, but occasionally it reaches out and grabs us. No, it clings to us all the time. And why is this so? It is because we still have the flesh, the sin nature residing in us. It clings to us because it still resides in us. Even though we have been given a renewed heart, per Ezekiel 36, the sin nature still resides within us and taints every aspect of our being. So it's a daily throwing off of weight and sin, of fighting sin and and hating sin and mortifying it, doing what Puritan John Owen said. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Listen, if you're not killing sin, if I'm not killing sin, it's going to kill us. This is mortify it, put it to death. But how do we kill sin? How do we run a race with our eyes on Jesus? We run by fixing our eyes on Jesus with joy. That's what we see in verse 2. We must look to Jesus if we are to, to run the race of discipleship. The three men that we saw in Luke 9 were not looking to Jesus. He was everything that they needed. They didn't see him as the treasure that was before their eyes. And that's the key to discipleship, seeing Jesus as the greatest thing in the world. That's the key to sanctification. You want to fight sin? You keep your eyes on Jesus and you want to throw sin off and wait. Sam Storm says in his book, Pleasures Evermore, The Life-Changing Power of Enjoying God. He says, we sin because we enjoy the pleasure it brings. We sin because it feels good. We sin because it brings a thrill to our bodies, fleeting satisfaction to our souls, and excitement, excitement to the banality and boredom of our everyday lives. We sin because we believe the lie, the pleasure it brings. Though passing is more satisfying than the pleasure of obedience. We say yes to sin because we believe it's promise of more pleasure than God gives. This leads me to the simple conclusion that the only way for us to successfully resist sin is by maximizing our pleasure in God. The key to victory over sin is satisfaction with all that God is for us in Jesus. The decision to say no to sin must be energized by the assurance of delight in an alternative yes. We must fight sin with a massive promise of superior happiness. See what he's saying? We fight sin by saying, I'll be happier if I obey my Lord. We must swallow up the flicker of sin's pleasure in the forest fire of holy satisfaction. Get the picture. A little flickering flame of sin and the pleasure it brings must be swallowed up by the forest fire of pleasure and satisfaction in Jesus. The only thing that will ultimately break the power of sin is passion for Jesus. The only thing that will guard me from being entrapped by sin is being entranced by Jesus. In other words, the key to holiness is falling in love with Jesus. What he's saying is that we must be amazed at Jesus, that it is essential 
to fight sin. We must be dazzled by him. We must be overwhelmed. We must be flabbergasted that God would pour his wrath out upon his son to bring us to him. We must be flabbergasted and say, see what great love the father has that we should be called the children of God. When you are consumed by that and wrapped up in that and you are entranced by Jesus, it will give you the power to fight sin, to throw off the weight and to run after him. But you must look to Jesus. You must rehearse the gospel. You must focus on your savior and not on your behavior. You must do as Robert Murray Machane said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Discipleship requires a focused commitment on Jesus. Discipleship requires a focused commitment on Jesus as your joy and as your treasure in this life. So look to him, Grace. Stare at him. Be entranced by him. Be dazzled by him. Behold his beauty and glory and be transformed. That's the essence of discipleship, being entranced by Jesus, by looking at him and saying, I can't believe you would love a wretch like me, but I can't believe it, but I believe it. That's the essence of discipleship. Continually rehearsing the gospel. May God give us eyes to see him as the greatest pleasure and treasure in the universe. And may he enable us by his spirit to throw off weight and sin and to run the race of discipleship with joy. Let's pray. Father, we... all have a need in our lives to throw off weight and sin right now, God. We are so easily distracted by the shiny, glittery things of this world that would promise us freedom and pleasure. And so we come to the communion table today and just confess that we are sinners. We ask you to forgive us. We take a moment now, Father, to make things right with you. We come to this table, God, as sinners who need to be filled up again by your spirit. Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? Would you wash us? And would you help us to delight in your son as these elements picture for us? They portray the gospel. These elements, Father, are screaming out to us that Jesus paid it all. And so, God, we ask you to forgive us and cleanse us. And now we come to celebrate the peace that we have because of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.